I invite you to turn in the back of the Trinity Psalter hymnal. We'll look at one Heidelberg question and answer tonight before we read the Word of God. We'll be looking at, in particular, question and answer 114 of the Heidelberg Catechism, which you can find on page 893 in the back of the Trinity Psalter hymnal. And then the Word of God will come to us from 1 John chapter 2, verse 1 to 6 tonight. So you can turn there as well. And that is found on page 1,210. Let us read responsively. Question and answer 114. But can those converted to God keep these commandments perfectly? No. In this life, even the holiest have only a small beginning of this obedience. Nevertheless, with all seriousness of purpose, they do begin to live according to all, not only some of God's commandments. And now the reading of God's holy word from 1 John chapter 2, verse 1 to 6. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. May he add his blessing to it as we meditate on this passage together tonight, loved ones. Well, here before us, John is writing to show us how to sin less in the Christian life. And there are three things that John puts before us to help us in that matter, to sin less. And the first thing we'll consider is our goal, our goal. John states plainly what his goal is in writing this letter to the Christians. He says, so that you may not sin. And this is the goal before us, that we would not commit sin. Now, John here does not say that he expects us to reach a state of sinlessness, that we would be perfect in this life. He doesn't expect us to become entirely without sin in this life. And we remember what we heard last week from chapter 1 when Pastor Daniel was preaching that John says if we, if we say that we do not have sin in the present moment, if we claim that we are sinless, well, we are making God into a liar because God's word clearly states that we still have sin abiding within us. This means that the state of sinlessness is not possible in this life. And so... John must mean here that the goal is not to be sinless, but rather that we would sin less in the Christian life. The goal is that you and I would be more obedient today than we were yesterday. 
that we would have more love for God and love for others springing forth from our heart tomorrow than we have had today. That our love would increase all the more in the very next hour before us than it has all of the hours previous. That is the goal that John's putting before us. And we see that even though we won't reach the finish line of perfection in this life, we are still called to run towards that end. The state of sinless perfection is the final, ultimate goal before us in Christ. Paul, the apostle, talks about this in Philippians chapter 3, where he says there, Not that I have already obtained this, that is the resurrected state of perfection, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And there in that passage, the Apostle Paul is describing himself like a runner, straining his neck at the end of the finish, or at the end of his race, trying to cross the finish line, eager to reach that prize. And Paul, in his life, strained with all his might, with all the might of God at work within him, to finish, to finish his race, to reach that line of perfection, that sinlessness, to become like Jesus. He was straining forward to that goal. Why? Well, Paul said it there, because Jesus had made him his own. Paul didn't strain forward in obedience to try and make Jesus like him or love him. No, Paul strained forward in obedience because Jesus already loved him perfectly. Paul pressed on toward the goal of sinning less because he wanted to thank Jesus for blessing him with salvation. He wanted to become like the one who had blessed him. And in Paul, we find this personal goal that he strived for with all his might, with all the might of the Spirit of God at work within him, towards perfection. And that should be our goal as well. We should long to become more like Jesus in our life. We should want to sin less in our life in order to give more glory to God, walking in obedience and loving him and loving our neighbor and thanking him for the great salvation we have received. And that should be our personal goal. But John here, he's not talking about his desire for a personal growth in Christ. Rather, John is talking about his goal for other Christians to grow in godliness. John says, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Now, why? Why does John want this for them? Clearly, as he states there, they are dear to him. These Christians are dear to him. Notice how he speaks with such tenderness and personal care for them. How does he call them? My little children. Why? This most likely means that John was the preaching and teaching pastor of a particular church to whom he is writing. And unlike us today, when we post on social media, we post to a faceless crowd of people, right? No, John is, is speaking to people whom he knew very personally, intimately, people whom he knew, those men, women, and children that had come under his pastoral care, that willingly submitted to his leadership as a kind of 
father figure in their life, to learn from him the ways of Jesus. And as parents, as we know, as parents, we long for our own children to grow up to be wise and loving in life. And so too, John wants Christians to grow up wise and loving in Christ. That's what he wants for his own congregation. And based on this term of endearment, little children, John sees that Christians are in a process, a process of spiritual growth that is akin or like to children growing up towards maturity, towards manhood, or becoming grown-ups, right? Paul uses this same illustration in Ephesians chapter 4, when he says that Christ gave the apostles, the prophets, the teachers, the shepherds, the evangelists to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ for this goal, until we all attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And so that is the goal that is before us, to attain maturity in our faith together as the body of Christ. Now, what does that maturity look like? As Paul said, it looks like conformity to the image of a fully grown man, in particular, Jesus Christ, in all his wisdom, in all his compassion, in all his mercy. Or as John puts it at the end of our passage, it looks like walking in the same way that Jesus walked, having the imprint of Christ upon our life so that others would see in us and through us Christ's presence upon us, his grace at work in us and through us. So that is the goal, a mature faith conformed to the image of Christ, walking more in love for God and love for each other, just as Jesus did. But as we strain for that goal, towards that finish line, it will always be beyond our reach in this life. In this life, we can mature and grow up in our faith and sin less, but we won't ever be sinless until we enter into glory after death. And John knows that. He knows that. He knows that we will sin. And that's why he says, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And that leads us to our second point, our advocate. In verse 1, John tells us how Jesus removes the penalty of sin. Understanding this and receiving it by faith is very important as we strive forward towards that goal of glory with Christ because it's so easy for us to fall into the prison house of guilt and shame. It's easy for us to get caught up in our own faults and failures and begin to fear God's displeasure of us, his dislike of us. If we dwell on our past sins, we can easily feel the weight of guilt and shame of all of our thoughts and words and actions that we have done to hurt others. And that guilt and shame kind of form these roadblocks in our progress, in the race before us, hurdles that keep us from moving forward. And when we feel naked and ashamed and covered in guilt, often what we do or what we want to do is to hide from God, to run away from him, which is what Adam and Eve did in the beginning when they sinned. They hid from God. They ran away in their guilt and shame. They ran from God. Our sin fills us with guilt and shame, which drives us away from God. And John knows that. He knows that. He knows that our sins often turn our hearts away from God. 
And so what should we do when we sin? When we commit a sin, when we fall again into that same besetting sin? What do we do when we feel guilt and shame upon us? Well, interestingly, notice that John doesn't tell us what we should do when we sin. Instead, he tells us what? He tells us what we have. He says what we have, or rather, whom we have. Whom do we have? We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. We have Jesus. Christian, you have Jesus when you fall into sin. And so when you trip up and fall into sin, how do you get back? How do you get back into the race and continue to press on towards that finish line of perfection? How do you strain forward? Well, don't let your sin drive you away from Jesus. Rather, let your sin drive you towards Jesus because he is your advocate. When you sin, remember whom you have, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, who is your advocate with God the Father. Like the author of Hebrews says, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How? By doing what? By looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. But what about Jesus are we supposed to look to or call to mind when we sin? Well, John tells us we are to look to Jesus as our advocate. Now, the word that John uses here in the Greek is paraclete, and it literally means one who comes alongside another. And depending on the context in which it is used, it refers to someone who is like a comforter or someone who comes bringing counsel, a counselor, or an advocate. It's the very same term that Jesus uses to refer to the Holy Spirit, whom he sent from the Father to come alongside us as our helper. And in this context, the idea is that of a legal counselor or a defense lawyer. And so Jesus is the one who has been appointed and willingly took the place to stand and speak on behalf of the accused, accused sinners, defending them before God, our judge. And unlike us, Jesus has the right to enter into God's presence. Why? Well, John tells us because he is righteous. He is the righteous one. Psalm 24 says, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. That person can enter into God's presence. Remember, we've seen already that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Darkness cannot dwell with God. Jesus had no darkness. His hands were entirely clean. His heart was totally pure. He obeyed God's law perfectly. He was truly sinless. And therefore, Jesus alone can ascend to God's holy hill and stand before his holy presence on the basis of his own merits. Jesus is granted the privilege to speak freely and openly before God the Father because he alone is righteous. And so we have this righteous one who advocates for us before God the Father. In the book that we all read together, many of us, um, Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland, he says this, We are called to mature into deeper levels of personal holiness as we walk with the Lord. But when we don't, when we choose to sin, our Savior does not forsake us. These are the very moments when his heart erupts on our behalf, 
in renewed advocacy in heaven with a resounding defense that silences all accusations, astonishes the angels, and celebrates the Father's embrace of us in spite of all our messiness. Beautiful. Or you can think of it in this way, that as our sin tempts us to run away from Jesus and hide from him, Jesus' heart is actually drawn ever more towards us because of our sin. Jesus ever lives to make intercession for us, defending us before God. He wants us to come to him with our sin so that he can present his defense to God the Father. But here's a problem before us. We are not the wrongfully accused. We are not innocent bystanders in the story of God. We are not basically good in our heart of hearts. Rather, we are outlaws who have sinned against the holy God. We are guilty. And we deserve punishment. And even the best lawyer can't clear the guilty when there is indisputable evidence of their guilt. It is simply impossible. And the evidence against us is clear. And God searches our hearts. Every thought and intention of our heart is before him. He knows. And so in Romans 3, we hear the charge that all are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. Therefore, words alone from Jesus as our defense lawyer cannot save us. If Jesus only stood up to speak for us, that would not be enough. But that's not all that John mentions here, is it? He also says that Jesus is what? In the next verse, he is the propitiation for our sins. Now, propitiation, that's a big word. And it means a sacrifice that has been made in order to remove the wrath of God, the anger of God that's aimed at our sinfulness. So with this one word, propitiation, John reminds us that when Jesus died on the cross, he removed God's wrath that was previously aimed at us. Jesus on the cross removed that wrath of God for us. How? By standing in our place, receiving the punishment that we deserve. Now we can begin to understand how Jesus' advocacy, as he stands up to bring a defense to God, is so powerful and so effective for us. Because when Jesus stands to defend us before the Father as our advocate, his argument to God is not that he should be merciful instead of just. No, he paid for full justice. His argument is not that we aren't that bad and that God should see the good within us. He knows that no one is righteous, no, not one. That's not his case. No, Jesus' argument is that justice has already been served in their case. The punishment for their sins has already been paid in full. Jesus rises in our defense and advocates for us on the basis of his wounds. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because Christ Jesus was condemned in our place on the cross. All of God's righteous anger against you, Christian, was aimed at Jesus instead on the cross. In a sense, you can think of it this way, that Jesus placed a bullseye upon his own heart and God's wrath that was aimed at you, was then directed to Jesus on the cross. And he received the full punishment that you deserve for your sins. And he did that willingly. 
2,000 years ago, he willingly took the punishment for us. And gladly today, he stands to defend you before the Father by virtue of that death. He is the propitiation for our sins. And this is a freeing reality. It frees us. It frees us from the heavy weight of guilt and shame. Like in uh, in Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress with the burden on his back when he finally realized what Christ had done upon the cross. His burden fell off and rolled down the hill and he was free to press on forward. We see that it frees us not to sin more, but to sin less, to pursue more obedience. And if you don't know yet, Jesus, by faith, and the freedom that he gives from our guilt and shame, know this, that Jesus' blood and righteousness was not just shed for those who currently believe today. John tells us here that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins and also for the sins of the whole world. We believe, therefore, that Jesus died for sinners from every tribe, tongue, and nation of the world. We believe that Jesus died for them in this way, as our confessions say in the Canons of Dort, that the death of God's Son is the only and entirely complete sacrifice and satisfaction for sins. It is of infinite value and worth, more than sufficient to atone for the sins of the whole world. His blood is sufficient to atone for your sins as well. So don't wait to come to him. Go to Jesus by faith in prayer. Ask Jesus to be your advocate. Don't try to defend yourself before other people or before God. Let Jesus defend you. Let his blood and his righteousness speak on your behalf because his blood, his death, is sufficient to free you from the penalty of all your sin. And so so far we've seen the goal before us to be, or not to be sinless, but to sin less. And we've seen also how Christ, as our advocate, frees us from the weight of guilt because he removed the penalty of our sin by dying on the cross for us. And lastly, we consider this, our union with God. We find in verses 3 through 6 that every person who receives this truth about Jesus begins to walk in obedience to God's commandments. Why? Because Jesus did not only die to deal with the penalty of sin, but also the power of sin over us. Jesus died to remove God's wrath that was hanging over us for our sins, and he also died to remove the power of sin dwelling within us. John shows us here that whenever God's truth about Jesus enters into a person, when it truly abides in a person, it always produces the fruit of obedience. In other words, God's truth received by faith always results in love formed by faith. God's truth, once rooted in the heart, always produces the fruit of love. And in this way, Jesus removes the power of sin that dwells within us. The more we receive God's truth into our hearts, the truth of the gospel, the more we look to Christ by faith, the more he calls or casts out, in a sense, the power of sin and reorders our hearts to love God above all else and to love our neighbors as ourselves. By the Spirit of God, the truth of the gospel can powerfully transform hearts. And that's what John believes here. And that's what he's speaking of. That Jesus does not only advocate for sinners, but he also sent the Holy Spirit, our other advocate, our other helper, to come 
and work into us the very love of Christ to perfect his followers, to sanctify us by the truth. Jesus is not content. Think of this. Jesus is not content to simply present a legal case or defense before God that we are forgiven and righteous based on his merits. No. Jesus is working by his spirit to perfect his followers, empowering them more and more to walk in obedience to him. Jesus' end goal is stated here for us in verse 5. His end goal is for God's love to be perfected in us. And he is promising to bring us to that state of perfection, sanctifying us by his word and his spirit. In the Greek, there is a bit of nuance in verse 5. John is speaking there of, he uses what's called a proleptic, proleptic perfect. And so it's almost stated in the past tense as if it's already happened, but he's looking forward to a future reality. The reality that as God's word comes into us and his truth abides in us and it begins to produce love, so truly he promises to perfect that love in the future, that we will be perfected, that he will preserve us in faith and will perfect our faith in the end. And we will walk continually more and more in obedience until we arrive with him in glory. We will cross that finish line is what John is saying. Our hearts will be turned to love God and love our neighbors as ourselves and therefore what john is saying is if somebody claims they know jesus by faith claims that they are a christian yet they do not strive for obedience they are not on that race pressing on they have no desire to reach that finish line they have no desire to love god or love their neighbors or to walk in obedience to christ's commandments well john says they are lying they're liars now does that mean that we obey perfectly that we strive and strain forward in perfect obedience by no means as we already said and considered from the heidelberg catechism even the holiest men in this life have only a small beginning of this obedience yet so with a sincere resolution they begin to live not only according to some but all the commandments of god and why Why is it that every Christian does that? Why is it that every Christian does seek to walk in greater obedience, not only to some of commandments of God, but to all of them? It is because by faith we are united to Christ. And as we abide in him, by his spirit he abides in us, and his truth is at work within us, forming love for God and love for our neighbors. This is a promise from Jesus. And so let us keep before us this goal to sin less, but let us remember as well that when we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, who has removed the penalty of sin for us. And let us as well lean in to our union that we have with Christ by faith, for he promises to remove the power of sin in us as well until God's love is truly perfected in us in glory. Amen. Let us pray. Thank you, Father God, for this good word from 1 John that comes to us as sinners and sufferers in need of the advocacy of Christ. And we rejoice that you have provided the righteous one, Jesus Christ, who is the propitiation for our sins, the one who eagerly and willingly and gladly stands to defend us before you, O Father. 
and before all accusers, declaring that we are righteous, declaring that we are innocent, that we are beloved children of God and heirs of the kingdom of God, not based on our merits, but based on his wounds and his merits. And not only that, O Lord, but we thank you as well that his truth abides in us and that by your spirit, you are sanctifying us by that truth. You are reordering the loves of our hearts to properly love you first and foremost and to love all other things in their proper order. Lord, we ask that you would continue to work in us in these ways. We ask it for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.